It's good to see you guys today. Um, it, it's, it's always a blessing to be here. This is my favorite part of every single week is to be here with you guys, and I, and I, I truly mean that. Um, I want to, to say this. I just feel led, I feel compelled this morning to, to mention this to you, to say this to you, um, to encourage you this way. Um, we are not perfect. Okay? We are not perfect. We let each other down. All right? um, our relationships are not always perfect. Right? They're not always exactly the way we would imagine them to be. Uh, a lot of times, um, we, we like to, to think that when we come here, we come together, that this is somehow where people aren't going to let us down. Like somehow this is the place and the space where everything should be perfect, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not perfect. Sometimes things don't feel the way that they're supposed to in our mind, right? Um, and, and we don't understand each other. We misunderstand each other. And, and in fact, we let ourselves down, and then we shut ourselves off, and then we, we, we don't allow ourselves to engage the way that we're supposed to. And there's all these things that can get in the way of proper worship, proper fellowship, proper love. And I want to say this. God is perfect. He's not just not a liar. He's perfect in every regard, and His love for you is absolutely perfect. It's absolutely perfect. And this room is a room full of hypocrites who recognize the fact that God's love is perfect. We don't gather. We don't gather because we're perfect. We don't gather because we have it figured out. We gather because God's love is perfect towards us. And we have to remember that. Things are going to be hard. Things are going to be difficult. There are going to be challenges in your walk. There is going to be suffering along the way. And people will hurt you. And you are going to hurt other people. And we have to choose to engage. Because God is worthy. Do you understand? Don't get isolated. Don't get lied to. Don't get confused. Okay? Stare longingly at God's word and be reminded, be refreshed by his perfect love. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm just so thankful for you. And and I'm and I can't help but reflect on all the, the situations that I, that I know of in Kaya, things that have just been hard, people that people have gotten their hands slapped this week, and people who needed correction, people who are hurting and in pain because, because they lost something, people who have been confused, people who have been isolated, faces that I don't even see here this morning, people that I love that aren't here this morning because they've, they've chosen to isolate themselves. And God, all I know, all I know is that there is no satisfaction in life outside of the purpose and plan that you have for us, outside of the, the perfect love of Jesus Christ and what he compels us to, what he draws us to. And that is where the heaven is. That's where the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven collide is when we recognize that everything we need is in the person of Jesus Christ and His love towards us is so good and we're so thankful for it. 
And so, God, I just ask that this morning we would be able to reprioritize and refocus our minds and we would be able to see who you are and that your word would call us to something greater, that we would be able to shake off the lies of the devil and we'd be able to lean into the work that you have for us. You do have something for us. We can't afford to waste our lives. We can't. And so we have to gather our emotions and we have to gather our minds and we have to turn towards you and we have to follow you, follow you. We've got to follow you hard. What else will we do, Lord? So let your spirit be strong in us this morning and give us the strength and the will to press in. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Today we are going to be introduced to the Apostle Paul, okay? Apostle Paul, okay, so that's the name of the message, Meet the Apostle Paul. I couldn't think of anything any more clever than that. You all right with that? Thanks. Let's just real quick, let's briefly recap what we've been looking at in Acts. Uh, you know, we've, we've come a long way so far. The first seven chapters of Acts, you know, uh, we don't have time to recap that, but, but, but just for the sake of brevity, the first seven chapters of Acts are about the establishment of the church, okay? How the, how the church takes shape. And it begins with Christ leaving and Him sending His Holy Spirit to indwell His followers. And as we see the, the chapters unfold and we see... Peter preaching, and we see the healings, and we see the church moving. We're seeing structure take place. We're seeing the the church take structure, take the form that Christ intended for His bride. We see sacrifice being made between believers. We see see, uh, roles taking place, right? Deacons are established. Pastors are established. Missionaries are established. And we're seeing the church come into its, its, its proper form. But as we get into uh, Acts chapter 8, what we discover is that, that the religious establishment is not going to have it. Okay? The religious leaders aren't going to have it. They are not pleased with anything other than the traditions of old. And they've rejected the Messiah and they will reject the disciples of Jesus Christ. And so what happens is Stephen is martyred. And, and once Stephen is martyred, Christians recognize that, uh, that their lives are in jeopardy. And so they begin to scatter about the regions um, outside of Jerusalem. And, um, and so what we see is this, this moment of scattering. And in the scattering and in the rejection of the Messiah, we begin to see God working in the lives of the Gentile peoples, the people who have not traditionally followed God. And so we see that happen in the life of Philip. Philip was a deacon in the early church, and he goes as the first missionary, short-term missionary, sit out, and he goes to Samaria. And he begins to preach the gospel, and the gospel begins to have effect. And the Samarians, they begin to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the church begins to take form in, in other regions outside of Jerusalem. Now, what, what happens is, we, we, we've gone through these stories, and, and now we enter into chapter 9, and we're reintroduced to a figure named Saul. A figure named Saul. Now, before we talk about Saul too much, let's first acknowledge that Saul becomes, becomes the Apostle Paul. He becomes the Apostle Paul. And so today, we're going to actually look at the salvation of Paul. 
which to me is a great story. Now, Paul is an, an important, an exceptionally important individual for us as believers. In fact, for us in the church age, Paul, outside of Jesus Christ, is probably the most important figure that we can look to. He provides for us the most exciting and the most amazing example for our lives. See, the Apostle Paul is the key figure of the New Testament. He writes 13 New Testament books. Okay, one of those is debatable. But, but at least 12. I'm just saying, it's debatable. He doesn't come out and say, hey, I wrote Hebrews. So we don't know, Philip, or Eric Phillips. Don't look at me like that. Okay? All right, but, but here's the point. Is that the majority of our New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul. He lays out for us the, the, the doctrines for which the church follows. He's our theological light post. And we, we, we look to his writings to know how we are supposed to live. God has used him more than any other figure in all of Christianity to shape the way that we think and the way that we live. And we talked about this last week. I used this verse as a jumping off point. But in 1 Corinthians, he says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. This is his call to us. His heart was the heart of the discipler. He is the discipler. He is the ultimate discipler for the New Testament. We talk about discipleship constantly, don't we? Paul is the discipler. He set that thinking into motion for the New Testament believer. He shows us what that should look like in the context of the church. He gives us those perspectives. Now, listen, his pedigree is also impeccable. All right? He, he is a unique person just by way of pedigree alone. He was, an, he was a Jew by religion, right? Okay, we're going to look at that here a little bit more in a second. But he was a Jew by religion. He, brought, he was brought up in the Jewish faith. He was a Pharisee by station. In other words, his position in life, his vocation, was Pharisee. And if we, if we remember correctly, the Pharisees were the, a sect in the religious order. Okay? Them and the Sadducees were essentially uh, two different, of two different ilks, but they were very, very influential. They were very, very important figureheads. And he was a Pharisee. He was a judge over the Jewish people. He was a Greek in his education. All right, so he knew uh, the way that Gentiles thought. He knew the way that Greeks thought. He, was, he, could, he could think both as a Jew and as a Greek. Okay? He could think both in, in circular and abstract terms the way a Jew might, but he also could think in, in linear terms the way a Platonic Greek might. Right? He was, in his education, very much Greek. And lastly, he was a Christian. He became a believer in Jesus Christ. He followed after Jesus Christ. And he, he, this is why he's so important in his writings. God, God, even before he knew Jesus Christ, God was using the things that he knew to prepare him for a very, very important work. His calling was also exceptional. Okay? The weight of his calling was exceptional. He was an apostle. He was a pastor. He was a missionary. He was a preacher and a teacher and a theologian. Listen, Saul's no joke. He's the man. He is the man. 
But Saul was also a man. And his past was riddled with sin and wickedness and evil. And God redeemed him. And that's crucial for our understanding today. So let's look a little bit more at who Saul was. Let's introduce ourselves to him. Saul would eventually be called Paul, right? Now, Saul was born in the Roman port city of Tarsus. Okay, Tarsus, you might be familiar with Tarsus because Jonah went there before he went out on his brief expedition, right? Uh, but he, 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 Jonah went south to the, to the port of Tarsus in order to board a ship that would take him away from the will of God. Okay, but Tarsus was a port city, and so it was an economic hub, and it was also an educational hub. Okay, and Paul grew up there with his family, uh, and was was educated there. Uh, Saul was a a Jew, and his father was a Roman citizen. Okay, which means that as a Jew, his father was probably wealthy enough to buy his Roman citizenship. In other words, they were probably well-to-do. They were privileged people economically, and they could afford to purchase a Roman citizenship. All right? I wish it was that easy for us here, wouldn't it? Some of you foreign exchange students, you internationals are like, man, huh, that's too bad. Okay? But back then, in, in, in Roman culture, you could actually purchase your citizenship. Uh, as a boy, Saul was trained as a tent maker. And in Jewish culture, uh, before you would go off to get educated, it was super important that you learn a trade. And that trade would later on pay off greatly because the Apostle Paul would provide for himself by being a tent maker. Okay, when he, could, he didn't have the money and the resources necessary, he would take some time to, to, to make tents, okay, to raise a little money, and to, and to fund the work that he was about. All right? And so that was really important. He, he was brought up that way. As a youth, Saul was sent away to Jerusalem for school, at a very young age, to follow in his father's footsteps as a Pharisee. So Saul would go to Jerusalem specifically to study at the feet of a man named Gamaliel. Okay? And Gamaliel was recognized as one of the most holy men of the time. Highly educated, a figurehead of the Jewish faith, and to be able to study at his feet would have been a huge privilege. And Saul was one of those privileged individuals who would study at the feet of Gamaliel. Saul had the very best education. He had the very best training. And he would, have, he would have likely have memorized the entire Old Testament. Okay, it was common for, for, for young boys to learn the first five books of the Bible. But for a man of his pedigree, it would have been almost a sure bet that he would have had the entire Old Testament memorized. Some of y'all who are in discipleship right now are thinking to yourselves, mm-mm. <laughs> I, I couldn't even get last week's two verses memorized. I mean, Nick and I work on this every week, and he's great at memorizing, and I'm awful at it. He knows that. He knows that. My, my, you know, he knows all of Pastor Briscoe's shame. But I get words wrong. I can't, you know, I, I, I misplace words here and there. You know, Saul would have had the entire Old Testament memorized, which is, is crazy, which is crazy. Just Psalm 119, just think about that. Just having that thing memorized, right? I mean, especially since it repeats itself so much. I would get so backwards and twisted and turned around, I would have no idea. But he, but he was that kind of guy. So listen to what he says reflecting on all that he was and had. This is him as a believer 
looking back on his life, looking back on who he was in his flesh before he knew Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me? And this is the point for today. Those I counted loss for Christ. So in other words, all of the things that I knew, all of the the things that I had, all the privileges that were given to me, all of of my identity, identity that ever I was, I counted those things but loss for the excellency of Jesus Christ. Now, how, how do we get that kind of thinking, is the question. I mean, really, f- for today's message, how do we think that way for ourselves? How do we look to Paul's life as a true example? Follow me as I follow Christ. How do we look to Paul, even from the very beginning, the testimony of his salvation, how do we look to see how we're supposed to live? That's what we're going to do today. So let's begin by looking at Saul's passion, purpose, and plan. Saul was an angry man. When we first meet Saul, we see that he is a part of of an uprising of Jewish men who are incredibly angry. What are they angry about? What are these Jewish men angry about? They're angry because Christians are infiltrating the church. They're coming into the temple and they're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. This strange, strange, divergent religion. Okay? And Paul, along with other important Jews, young, zealous Jewish men, they would have taken extreme issue with the fact that Peter and John and these other disciples of Jesus Christ were going into the temple and into the areas around the temple and they were preaching the messages of Jesus Christ. They would not have liked that. You know, and he was, he was angry because he adored his faith. It was his whole life. It was everything that he knew. And when he saw Jerusalem Jerusalem was being stirred up because of the conversions of of these Jews to Christianity, it brought anger to his heart. And we see Saul's anger on display when we find him at the scene of Stephen's death, facilitating his murder. Look at Acts chapter 7, verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran uh, ran upon him, him being Stephen, with one accord. And cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And Saul, in in chapter 8, verse 1, And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which which was at, at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. See, Saul is determined to hunt down every disciple of Jesus. He wants to see them prosecuted. He wants to see them punished. He wants to see them killed. That's his heartbeat. That's his desire. That's his passion. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says, in describing describing how he went about doing this, 
and Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughtering uh, and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord went unto the high priest. So, so just for a moment, that word breathing out essentially, essentially means that, that Saul's very breath, his very breath was to, to persecute the church. The, the air that he breathed was to punish Christians. It was his passion. It was his only desire. It's what he fixed his thoughts on. And he had a plan to make it happen. So look at verse 2. And he desired of him, being the high priest, he desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he, would, he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. In other words, it wasn't good enough for them to, to persecute the Christians that they found in Jerusalem, knowing that they were scattering. He felt it was his responsibility to purge them out of every city within the region. So what he wanted was he wanted letters. He wanted warrants from the high priests. Okay, now, now listen. The Jewish order had the privilege given to them by the Roman government to actually be able to arrest and prosecute people. And so he went to the high priest and he requested warrants for the arrest of any Christian that he found worshiping in the city of Damascus. This was his plan. He had a strategy. He had thought this through. And as the Christians scattered from Jerusalem to the surrounding regions, Saul and his gang were determined to go. It was 225 miles. 225 miles. Probably eight to ten day journey to get to Damascus. That's, de- that's determination. I mean, I don't like riding in a car. It's like, the, the tri- like we're going to go to Estes this summer. All right? And I've got, we're going to have kids. Thank God for the d- little DVD player thing in the, in the minivan. Thank God for that. Because <clears throat> that eight to ten hour drive to get out there in a minivan, is rough. that's rough, man. That's rough. And that's for vacation. Yeah. Okay, this dude, right, is traveling eight to ten days. Some of it possibly by foot. Right? To get to Damascus to arrest and kill people. Right? It was his passion. And he had a plan. He had a plan to execute it. But as they neared Damascus, his plans change. Verse 3. And he journeyed. As they journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? The voice of Jesus himself calls down from heaven and addresses Saul directly. Now it says in verse 7, it says in verse 7, the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. They weren't seeing the same thing that Saul was seeing. They didn't see it. If you look at John chapter 12, there's this experience in John chapter 12 that's similar to this, where Jesus is having a conversation with God. And to everyone that's around, all of the people that surrounded Jesus in that moment, it sounded to, to them like thunderings. And so it's likely that these men didn't, couldn't even distinguish what it was that was being said to Saul, because certainly they would not have approved. 
right? So they probably couldn't even distinguish what was being said. All they knew was that there was a voice and that Saul was engaging it. Now what Saul was hearing was the voice of God, the voice of Jesus Christ. And the voice said to him, why are you persecuting me? Now isn't it refreshing to know that Jesus Christ equates your life with his own? That the persecution of his bride is the very persecution of himself? Man, it's good to know that we're one with Jesus. It's good to know that. So the voice of God and the light of God drives Saul to his knees. See, Saul was so taken back by what he was hearing that it dropped him instantly to his knees. His reverence was immediate and undeniable. And this is our first key point. And this is something that we need to learn. This is the very first in sample that that Saul becoming Paul is to us. When God speaks, His words demand our posture of humility. When God speaks to us, when He calls out to us, there should be a posture in our lives of humility before Him. Why is it that so often when we hear a message from God that's clearly directed at us, it's clearly God's correction for our lives, why is it so often that we walk away self-justified? Isn't that funny how we can hear a message and know in our heart of hearts that that message was for us, but then sit there and spend the entire message Okay, the entire time reading, the entire time in our Bible study, the entire time where our friend is coming to us in accountability, speaking the words of God into our lives, and we can walk away from that thing with a perfectly crafted excuse for why we aren't going to do the thing that God speaks to us. Every believer has experienced this. Where God speaks and our posture is wrong, and so we don't heed. We don't heed his words. We don't take them seriously. And we say to ourselves, oh, well, that, was, that message was for someone else. That message was for someone else. That, that message wasn't for me, certainly. Many of us are so resistant to the convicting power of God that his words are received similarly to the way the soldiers in this story receive it indistinguishable. The soldiers are standing around. The men are standing around with Saul. All they're hearing is an indistinguishable voice. And so there's, certainly there's no posture of humility in them. They have no reason to be on their knees. And many of us know that we are so hard-hearted that we will hear truth over and over and over again. And it just sounds like thunderings. And it's indistinguishable. And we feel that convicting power coming up against the wall of our heart. And we find one more excuse to reject it and push it away. From the very beginning, 
of Saul's testimony, what we see happening in his life is that we see he is willing, when he hears the voice of God, to fall to his knees in subservience to the one and only true God. We see that from the very beginning of his testimony. It's his very first example to us. So he falls to his knees, and the next thing he does is so obvious that it almost seems inconsequential. It seems like we should just pass over it. But it's perhaps the most important question anyone could ever ask in all of life. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? I mean, it's such a simple question. It seems, seems so obvious that we don't, even, we don't even acknowledge it. We could just keep reading the story. But this question is so important. Who art thou, Lord? Who art thou? See, the falling to his knees, it established lordship. But the object of his lordship was not fully known. Does that make sense? He did not yet know that this was the voice of Jesus Christ. So even though he's postured the right way, it wasn't until he asked the question, Who art thou, Lord? That he could focus the heart of his devotion. See, the question is super, super important. You know, they say, you hear this a lot, that there's no bad question. Have you ever heard that? There's no bad question. Okay, so I teach high school. And I know for a fact that there are bad questions. Okay? So here are a few of the bad questions that I get hour upon hour of my life. So any question I have already answered five times is a bad question. Okay, if I've already said it five times, okay, and you come and ask me about that thing again, I have to lean so hard into the Holy Spirit (laughs) because my flesh is saying, just reach back. Right? There's something going on in the subconscious. Any question that is completely off topic and irrelevant to what we are discussing in class is a bad question. Okay? Like... We're in block scheduling right now because of EOCs. You know what I'm talking about? Hannah is amening me hard up here. She's like, yes, preach. <laughs> We're in block scheduling. It means classes are longer, okay, because kids are testing in other classes. And so um, I'll be, like, instructing the class, okay, guys, this is what we're going to do, blah, 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 blah. That's how it sounds to them, right? And then they'll be like, um, like, this is the first five minutes of class. Uh, Mr. Briscoe, when do we get out? <laughs> like, you just got here. Don't, like, don't you love me and love my class enough? Do you just want to be here all day long? That's what I want. They don't all feel that way, I guess. Anytime someone asks me if they can go to the bathroom, it's a bad question. Now, not, not because I'm opposed to the idea of people going to the restroom, but it's because you said bathroom, as though there's a bath tub in there. Why does that bother me so much? We're at school, you know. Uh, so I'll be, I'll be like, are you, 
You planning on taking a bath or? It's more of a restroom. And they do. They go in there and they rest and they vape. It's the vape room. Really, just refer to it as the vape room. I'll know exactly what you're talking about. I swear, I mean, I go in there seventh hour. There's a, I, because I'm, I'm, I'm literally four weeks away from being done, that, I, that I'm just like, I can't fight every battle. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> seventh hour, there'll be a kid every day, okay, who is, who is doing the business and vaping. That's what, I go in there every seventh hour because I wait till seventh hour to use the restroom. And he's in there, and I'm just like, you know what? What am I going to do? Knock on the door, look over the side. Hey, buddy, I'm not doing that. So I just do my business, and I leave. I, I've caught six kids this year vaping. You know? It's too much. I can't, I can't anymore. All right? But you know what? There are, there are times, very rare times, when the students are so selfless in their question asking that they'll ask Mr. They'll ask Mr. Briscoe, hey, Mr. Briscoe, tell me something about your life. You know what I mean? Like the ones who want to be my friend. They'll like ask me, How, how's your day going? Right? It's very rare. <laughs> and to me, to me, the best questions, okay, the best questions are the ones where the kids actually care about me and they want to know. And Paul says, hey, tell me who you are. It's the best question. Saul says, I know your Lord, but that's not good enough. Tell me who you are. It's a powerful question to ask God. See, Saul was a man who had always assumed that he knew God. And in this moment, facing the very voice of God himself, he acknowledges that he actually knows nothing. Tell me who you are. Any question that begs God to reveal himself is a good question. Key point number two, whenever you are at a loss, whenever you're at a loss, Do not hesitate to ask God to reveal himself. That's a great prayer. God, show me where you're at. Tell me who you are. Remind me of who you are. Point me to who you are. And there's there's stability there. There's stability there. We can't forget that Jesus calms the sea. And anytime we are at a loss and we don't know what to do, we ought to ask God, who art thou? Remind me who you are. Because God is always faithful to reply with an answer. It says, and the Lord said. And the Lord said. He was faithful to reply. He was faithful to respond immediately. And he says, I am Jesus, 
What a beautiful response. What a beautiful name. Jesus, the name Jesus. How beautiful is the name Jesus? But how horrifying for Saul to hear. Right? In his flesh, the last name he wanted to hear called out was, I am Jesus. This is an oh crap moment. (laughs) In this moment, Christ confronts him for all of his hatred and anger. He confronts him for all the vain religion, for all the violence and all the murders, and says, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. In other words, what he's saying is, that's, a, that's, a, that's essentially the same as saying, it's hard for you to kick against the cattle prod, right? It's hard for you to kick against the hard, sharp element. You know, um, some of you have met Eva's dad. Eva's dad, Jim Bass. He's a tough guy. Vietnam vet, librarian, interesting individual. <laughs> I, I love him. I love him so much. But um, he, he has this story, okay? When he was young, a younger man, before Eva was even born, um, he grew up in South Dakota, so there's farms everywhere. And I don't really understand it. I just know that one time he kicked a pig. <laughs> he kicked a pig. I, the pig was in his way. It was bothering him. Anybody ever kick a pig? I've never. In fact, any time I've ever been in proximity to a pig, I've just walked the other way. Like, I have no interest. You know, that seems like the simplest thing. You don't have to kick a pig if you're not near a pig in the first place. But he's got this story where he kicked a pig. Now, now apparently, pigs are very hard because it killed the toenail. Right? It killed the toenail. And his right toenail, big toenail... I mean, is, it's like black. It's dead. It killed it at the root. It just never grew back. It never was right again. I know it's gross. Some of you guys are like anti-feet people, and this is really bothering you right now. For the anti-feet people, I apologize. All right, so he, he kicked the pig. Okay, so it's hard for you to kick against the pigs. I knew, I knew, I looked right at you because I knew how you'd respond to that joke. No, but listen to me. What he's saying is, He's like, it's difficult, listen, it's difficult for you to fight against the obvious. It's, It's only bad for you to go against my will. It's only a detriment to you to go against the waves. Isn't it hard for you to kick against the pricks, to work against the power of God? God is calling Saul to conviction and repentance. And listen to his response. Listen to what Saul says. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That's the perfect response. Key point number three. When God is faithful enough to reveal himself, when God is faithful enough to speak to you, when God is faithful enough to call you out, we must be ready to alter our direction. 
We must be ready with a faith response. What would you have me to do is the question of a man who is ready to change. A man who's ready to change his direction, to change what he's doing. A man who has seen his true self and is willing to abandon it in favor of a more perfect truth. See, if only we were this genuine with God. That when we look into the mirror of God's word, that we would respond with, okay, God, now what do I do? You've revealed me. You've shown me for who I am. Now, now what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? You know, a lot of us don't respond this way. You know why? Because we're disingenuine in our faith. We say we want the voice of God. But when it comes down to it, we hear it, we see it with clarity, and yet, we have an excuse. So we're not willing to ask the question, what, w- what would you have me to do? See, that's the question of a person who's ready to change anything about their life to pursue Jesus Christ. Verse 6, And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. Key point number four. When God reveals his will, we must be ready to obey it. Now note here that Saul's blinded. Okay, that Saul's blinded. Well, why is that? Why is it that Saul is blinded? Why is that necessary? Because God was forcing him to reject the work of the flesh. Right? Sight allows us to make decisions for ourselves. When we can look around and rationalize based on what we see, it's very easy for us to reject God's will for our life, God's plan for our life, God's calling on our life. It's very easy for us to do. But as a blind man who has to be walked around, right? he's holding the hand of these other men and they're leading him around, he has no choice but to, to surrender his mind and his heart. So his blinding, the blinding of Saul, reminds us that A, the brightness of the glory of God is too great for us to set our eyes upon. That's the first thing. Is that looking into the light of who God is, honestly, is too great. It's too great. I mean, Moses' face, he comes down from the mount, and his face is shining, like glow-in-the-dark Moses, right? This dude's face is shining. Because to look at God is to be affected And so, so Saul walks away blinded by the glory of Jesus Christ. B, it reminds us that God desi- God's desire for us is to trust him with our heart and mind because our eyes will deceive us. Our eyes will deceive us. Saul had to be led by the hand. God demanded surrender from him, a yielding of the mind and the heart. 
And now Saul is truly in a humble state. As he enters the greatest adventure of his life. I mean, you, you, think, you think Saul was zealous. You don't know zeal, zeal until you see the Apostle Paul at work. I mean, someone so full of graciousness and living in the grace of Jesus Christ that he has no choice but to work himself to death. It's amazing. It's amazing. And in blindness, he enters into the greatest adventure of his whole life. So listen to me. Paul wasn't in sample for us, wasn't he? Even in this moment. See, listen to to this. In conclusion, his response to Christ's voice looks like this. He falls to his knees. He cries out, Lord. He asks for God to reveal himself. In faith, he asks what he should do next. And then he does it. Anytime Jesus Christ speaks to us, this is the way it should look. This is what it should look like anytime the voice of the Lord comes to us through preaching, through teaching, through the study of His Word, through the accountability of our brothers and sisters in Christ. As we point to the book, there should be a proper response. As we look at God's Word, It should demand something. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. 2 Samuel 23.2 says, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. Mark 12.24 says, And Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the scriptures? Neither the power of God. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, Yea, then much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. And in keeping, in keeping of them, there is great reward. See, what if we looked at this example of Saul and we lived it out? See, what if when God's word came to us, it caused us to fall on our knees in brokenness? What if we acknowledged his authority by crying out to him? What if we did that? When was the last time you cried out to the Lord? What if we asked him to reveal himself? What if we made a practice of asking that question? What if there was a response of immediate obedience when his commands come to us? What if? Could we know God the way Paul did? Could we say to other people, follow me as I follow Christ? I mean, if those are things that you want for your life, then when we hear from Jesus Christ, that ought to demand a certain posture, a certain response, a certain obedience. That's how we ought to live. Worship team, if you could come up.
Guys, listen. There are many of you right now who recognize that you've been kicking against the pricks. God's word has come to you. It's very clear what submission looks like. And you've had excuses. It's time during the invitation to lay those excuses down and to pray with someone and ask God to reveal himself and to ask him what he would have you to do. And then when you get up from that prayer, it's your responsibility to do as the Lord commands. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. I thank you for these people, for those that I know, even for those faces that I, I don't know or don't know very well. Lord, I know that you have so much for us, for everyone in this room, Lord, that you're calling us to greater faith, greater dependence on you, greater surrender. God, will you show us what that looks like? Would you be faithful to reveal yourself, to speak to us, to show us what it means to obey you? And God, we might have the free will to say yes and to do as you command. God, you are so good and you've shown us so much from your word. Your book, your, your Bible, your, your letter to us is so thorough and true and beautiful and perfect. God, how could we not obey it? Lord, help us. We need you, and we need repentance in our life. Active repentance. I ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.